Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. A loving and merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have spoken to us through your very word, inspired uh, men of old to be able to write down your very words that we might be able to have them this very day. Lord, as we hear your word, as you have spoken to us, Lord, as you speak to us, peace to us, your people, to your saints, let us not seek to be able to turn back to the world, to the way of folly, but let us see the hope of salvation found in Jesus Christ, Lord, the glory of truth found throughout your word, that you would receive all glory, honor, and power, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 to 20. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, and I have, for I will harden his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I'll bring locusts, Upon your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses, and the houses of all your servants, and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the, the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh and said to him, Go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters, and with our flocks and our herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to him, them, the Lord be with you. If ever I let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locust, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all the day and all the night. When it was morning, the east wind was brought brought the locust. 
The locusts came up over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts that had never been, never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so the land was darkened, and they ate, they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained neither tree nor plant of the field, though all through all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded, pleaded with the Lord, And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the people of Israel go. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. As we have seen the story of these signs and wonders, we've pointed out many aspects that, are, that come up, the power of God, the protection of God, the punishment and God's purpose in all of this. We've seen that God's power is on display for Pharaoh unto all the nations that they may know that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And God shows his power and his might through these signs and wonders for a direct end, not only that his people would no longer be subject to Pharaoh, but they would be free and they would go to be able to serve the Lord. That instead of building Pharaoh's house, they would build the Lord's house. And the people of God are saved for a particular purpose, that they would worship God. And we've seen all of these as we've gone through the intensifying of the sign, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, the power of God against the Egyptians, And their gods, the providence and sovereignty of God in all of this. Signs which we see again in this plague that the intensity in the the locust coming, devouring what was not destroyed with the hail. See his sovereignty in all the aspects. However, I want to focus on one aspect of this plague that is unique to this particular plague and narrative. And mainly that God showing his power unto the generations. And God showing his power, not merely that Pharaoh would know, not merely that other nations would know, but the people of God would know about the power of God. Although Pharaoh sought to be able to stop the next generation from worshiping God, he still, the underlying basis and principle here is that Generations would know and worship the one true God. That God saves his people, both young and old, for his own purposes. The first thing that we see here in this passage is the little ones will know who the Lord is. That little ones would know who the Lord is. Interestingly, in this particular narrative, there's a different beginning to how these plagues have begun in the past. Normally they begin with the phrase that the Lord said to Moses... Either go say this to Pharaoh or go do this in front of Pharaoh. However, this is slightly different. Moses is told God's plan and purpose 
speaking of the freedom of the Israelites that they will have. Burrah has been told these signs and wonders are so that he would know who the Lord is, that the Egyptians would know who the Lord is, that nations would know who the Lord is. However, this time the Lord speaks directly to Moses and tells him that you may tell, in verse 2, in the hearing of your son and your grandson, how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. This instruction has a personal aspect to, to Moses, that Moses is to be able to instruct his sons, his grandsons, that Moses is able then to be able to instruct the Israelite people. He does so by teaching them in the wilderness, but also even by recording the story of Exodus for us under the inspiration of the Spirit. That here we have a direct account of this storytelling that Moses tells the people of God. And God shows his power and might not only for the people out, the sake of the people outside the covenant community, but also people within the covenant community. The people who should truly worship and honor God are told this story that they might understand the power of the God in which they worship. Now time and time again, the people of God will forget about the power of God. They will forget about how God saved them and delivered them out of the hand of Pharaoh into his glorious presence to be able to worship him for all eternity. Right after leaving Egypt, they start to complain and start to question why God has brought them out. Why have you brought us out into the wilderness to die? It would have been better for us to stay in Egypt. And they look back on that time of their slavery with some form of fondness and some form of love. And God shows His power that people might know who the Lord is, that they might remember what He has done for them. You see, this reminder throughout all the pages of Scripture, as they stand in the foot of Mount Sinai and the Lord tells them before He instructs them how to be able to live, how to be able to serve Him with their uh, actions, He reminds them and tells them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He reminds them of the power that He has shown them. So what's God's solution to this redemption or redemptive amnesia? He tells Moses to tell your children and your grandchildren. The covenant model is to be able to tell stories and tell stories over and over again. The children need to be instructed and reminded of what God has done in the past and what God does now in the future. That God is the God who saves. Psalm 78, a great psalm for you to be able to go read in your afternoon devotions today. But here the psalmist writes, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers told us. 
we will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord, the Lord, and his might and the wonders that he has done. Here stands a person who says, My fathers have told me about God and his redemptive story about how he saves sinners from the house of slavery. And I'm going to tell you now. I'm going to tell you this glorious story. How he has saved my father, how he has saved me, and how he will save you. And we tell God's story of redemption. Because the children need to hear it. But also we as parents need to be reminded of it as well. You see this principle throughout all the Bible. In chapter 13, we'll see the parents need to be able to tell children about how God saved them. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, the Lord instructs parents to tell their children so that we do not forget. In chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, we're reminded that our children, as we go about our every day, whether we're walking, whether we're sitting, we're to be able to teach them that the Lord is one, the Lord is our God. In chapter 6, the children are reminded that this is why we keep the law, because God saved us. Psalm 78 continues to say that we should keep telling the next generation, even those who are not yet born. This is why we have hope and seek to be able to obey the Lord's commandments, the psalmist writes in verses 5 to 8. But this is not merely just an Old Testament model. The same applies in the New Testament. Paul actually instructs fathers in particular to bring your children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Timothy was taught by his mother Eunice and grandmother Lois. Later in the letter, as Paul writes to him in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and he says, How from childhood... You have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The word there that that the ESV translates from childhood is actually a better word, is actually probably from the crib, from infancy. Your, Your mother and your grandmother made you acquainted with the sacred writing, the scriptures even from the, such a young age, that these scriptures are able to make even the smallest of children wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Parents and grandparents, the most important thing you will ever do in this world is point your children to Jesus. They could go on to do great things, cure great diseases, build big highways, sit in the highest office of the highest country in the the world. And yet the greatest thing you will ever do is point them to Jesus. And we've been instructed to be able to do so. When we're walking and talking, when we're sitting and driving, whatever we're doing, that we should be making them acquainted with these holy scriptures, that they might be wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Right from the womb, this should be our number one goal. And sadly, I think 
our, our, our desires as parents is merely to, to raise lovely children, not godly children. Obedient children, and not children who seek to be able to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our desire should actually be that they love God more than us. And again, not merely just making Pharisees, but ones who are wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What do you do then? How do you do that, accomplish that? Where do you start? How do you get from a baby in the crib to someone like Timothy, who Paul says that, you know, your parents made you acquainted with the Scriptures? How do you, it's a difficult thing. First, I think we need to understand we need to be acquainted with the Scriptures. If we are going to teach the Bible, we need to understand the Bible. And yet, how little we do that, how little we delve into the Word to be able to fully grasp and comprehend who the Lord is, the depths of our sin and depravity. And thus, when we sit in front of our children and open the Bible, we go, uh, we don't, we're not acquainted with the Scriptures. So first, we need to be able to understand what the Bible says, what the Bible teaches, that we might be wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And really, that comes through one simple thing. To be able to get acquainted with something is to, to familiarize yourself with it. To read the Bible. And thus, when you start to do that with your children, you read the Bible with them. You pray with them regularly. That's all you need to do. Read the Bible and pray with them. Do it regularly. So we need to be reading the Bible and praying regularly that we, when we do it with our children, do it when it works for your family in the morning, in the evening. If you cannot find time, you have to change your schedule. This should be one of the most important things you do. You have too much on. Not only do we show and teach our children in what we do, but also how we prioritize things. We teach our children what is important by what is important to us and how we set our schedules. Do we prioritize family over God? Do we prioritize academic studies over studying God's Word? If church is the first thing in our week to be able to go, then what happens when our children go up and they start to get busy? The first thing in their life that will go is church. Now, no house does this perfectly. In our house, we go through seasons where we feel like we're ripping through the Bible at great speeds, at great rate. Other times, it's sad to say that the Bible had not been opened in some time. However, the solution is not merely to wallow. The solution is, again, to read and pray. To try and do this. But not merely just in our family devotions. In Deuteronomy it says, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. 
To be able to make them wise for salvation is not merely just being able to make them acquainted to the Scriptures, but also point out how the Scriptures apply in their life. To be able to point them to Jesus as they sin, not merely correct them in discipline, but to be able to remind them of the Christ's death on the cross and how we are to love God by seeking to obey Him and ask for God to be able to help us to be able to pray with them when they fail, remind them of our hope of salvation found only through faith. The second thing that we see in this passage is little ones will go and serve the Lord. The second point that we see in this plague is that Pharaoh seeks to be able to limit who can come and who who could go and worship the Lord in the wilderness. And Pharaoh tries to add a condition upon who can actually leave. I'll let some of the people of God go. He asks the question in verse 8, which, one, which ones are going to go? And Moses tells Pharaoh that all of God's people are going to go. All of God's people are called to be able to worship the Lord. He says in verse 9, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and our herds. For we must hold a feast to the Lord. Eighty or so years ago, the person who held that position of Pharaoh sought to be able to wipe out the sons of Israel. And those sons now are 80 years old or so who survived, where the midwives didn't make it, who weren't thrown into the Nile. They've been serving Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says they can go. The ones in which he sought to be able to destroy 80 years ago, now he says they're free to be able to go to worship the Lord. Now maybe he's trying to hold the little children captive that the men might return. But here, you see, Pharaoh is only interested in a small, specific group of people. He's seeking to be able to hold the children of God. And just as the covenant community, as the church, seeks to be able to instruct the children in their midst, the enemy often seeks to be able to divide the family, divide the children from the parents. The simple question Pharaoh has is, who is going to worship the Lord? And Moses' answer is quite simple. All of God's people are called to be able to worship the Lord. All of God's people are free and going to be set free from slavery. Pharaoh tries to be able to send the men and kicks Moses out of his presence. But it's a non-negotiable for Moses. The foundation here is that children are part of the covenant community. They are also called to be able to serve and worship the Lord just as much as the adults. This is what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 2, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. In Christ's mind, children are not second-class citizens, but they are citizens of His kingdom. that our children are set apart from the world in our covenant community. 
then why would we seek to be able to malign them off to the sides, off the outskirts? We should have then the same approach and view of Moses and Jesus that we worship together. Think about what this does for our children. Not only are they exposed to the means of grace, but also they see you been exposed to the means of grace. They see you underneath God. They see you worshiping God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. As you sit under the Word of God, that you need to be fit and sustained by Christ. Through His Word, through His sacraments, that you are not some form of superhero. You are a sinner who needs to be saved, and Christ is your Savior. Now, more practically, how can we as a church not merely say we love children externally? But how do you show that love to children in our service? I think we do this terrifically in our church, and these are not sat down where I said, oh, these are things we need to improve on, but I think there are things that we all need to be able to grasp. Now, most churches generally say something, we love the little children. Except when they're too noisy or too messy. Except when they're too distracting. Except when they're too uh, irreverent or whatever. We love the little children. But actually what they don't, they love the idea of a little child. They don't actually love the children that wriggle. Children move a lot. They wake up and they've got more energy than we have when we have six cups of coffee. They don't understand cues. It's hard for them to be able to be quiet. But we want to be able to say we want those type of people in our church. We want wriggling feet. We want awkward moments. We want noisy cries. So here's a couple of things that I think might be helpful. Tell the parents that we love having the parents and their children in the service. Remind them with your words that we are grateful to see them. Think about the alternative. The other option is we don't see them at all. I would much rather preach and teach and pray over crying babies than dead silence. Encouraging them in what they are doing. Although we can have different styles of parentings from different cultures or generations, they are making a choice to bring their child here and sit in church. There is much easier things for a parent to do than that. Think about getting yourself ready for church and all that you go through now think about doing that ten times over with someone who runs around, makes a mess, cries, is disobedient. 
They're not seeking to make excuses why they shouldn't be here. They are here. Encourage them. Another thing that we can do is not stare. Curiosity is ingrained in all of us. And once we hear a noise, we are all inclined to be able to turn and find out what that noise is. But imagine you placing yourself in their shoes, having a terrible Sunday, screaming and yelling as you're trying to get your kids to keep their clothes on and sit in the car, trying to be able to make it to church on time, and you realize you need to go to church and hear of God's grace and love. But you don't quite make it to church on time. And you open up the doors. You know you are late. And those children who everyone says are, oh, they're angels. More correctly, they might be called lesion in the gospel accounts, and you seek to be able to walk to your seat. But as you do, everyone's eyes are on you. Now, some of us find it difficult to make it to church on time, and we only have to get dressed ourselves. Not staring can be a great help. Giving a parent a smile and saying, I understand your pain. Another thing that we can do is get to know the children. Get to know their names, their interests, their schools, their sports. That here Moses instructs and tells Pharaoh that the covenant community, those who worship God, are both young and old. And how special it is in a church. Very rare in society today. You see a collection of generations as there is in Sunday morning. Start to be able to ask kids questions, how things are. Now, generally speaking, children don't bite, but even if you get to know their name and encourage them and tell them it is so great to have them here. These are not tall things for us to be able to do, but they are important things. Finish with one last thing. That is that little ones will grow in the Lord. When we consider the narrative of Exodus, we find out that this passage is not in isolation. But we actually find out that this generation that is going to be forbidden to be able to go worship the Lord in the wilderness by Pharaoh that seeks to be able to stop them is actually the generation that crosses over the Jordan into the promised land that this generation, once known as the little ones, has a significant role in God's grand plan. God's grand plan. As we delve into this passage, we discover that it's not merely just a historical account, but a powerful lesson in generational faith. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, it paints a vivid picture of this generational progression. Here Moses instructs the assembly, assemble the people. Men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn the fear of the Lord, your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law. 
in that verse 12, the, the word little ones there. Here these little ones that were watching the plagues and listening to all that God was doing and, and how He saved them are now men and women at the end of Gen- uh, Deuteronomy. And they're then instructed to be able to go and instruct the little ones to be able to fear the Lord as they cross over in that next generation. That the journey of faith doesn't end with one generation. That it's like a relay. That the baton of belief is passed on from one generation to the next. The physical growth is inevitable. Children grow into adults. However, the real question is whether they will experience spiritual growth. The Apostle Paul underscores this point, urging us to put away childish ways and mature in every aspect into the image of Christ. And this maturity involves moving beyond spiritual milk and embracing the solid food. In many Christian circles, there's an emphasis on raising our children in the faith. This is undoubtedly critical. But what we mean by that is not merely that we raise our children in church. It's about encouraging them to grow up in the Lord. Our faith journey should not be stagnant at childhood. The lessons learned in Sunday school, the bedtime stories, the songs sung at vacation Bible school should serve as stepping stones of spiritual growth to adulthood. That even as Christ grew up in wisdom, stature, and favor of God and of man, that we seek to have children transition into adulthood in the faith that is profound and vital. It is about us taking ownership of our beliefs and deepening our understanding of God and living out our faith in this complex world. The little ones of Exodus teach us this, that we must keep on going and growing. That they were included, they were encouraged, they were empowered to learn the fear of the Lord and to be able to keep His commandments. And as we contemplate this generational faith journey, we're called to be mindful of how we, even as adults, need to continue to grow in maturity. Will we nurture their faith? Will we provide for them the tools and the knowledge they need to grow into mature believers? Will we create an environment where they can learn to fear the Lord? Not just our words, but through our actions as well. Will we inspire them to take their place in this ongoing journey of faith, carrying the torch of belief towards and into the future? What a glorious truth we think about, even how some men and women have impacted our faith. So those seeds of the gospel, that we might be able to grow more unto and like Christ our Savior. Foundational thing that we see in these passages is the truth. As Jesus echoes, let the children come to me.
Let us have that heart. Let us go to Christ like children ourselves. Let us go to him in prayer. Let us pray. O gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have revealed yourself through your word that we might be able to know who you are. Help us, Lord, that we would grow in our depth and our knowledge of you, that we would seek to be able to glorify you as we go on to maturity, becoming more like Christ and loving you more as the days grow dim. But Lord, also help us to be able to see that flickering ember in the next generation, to be able to pass this on to our children and our grandchildren, to be able to speak of your power and your might, how you saved us from slavery, to be able to serve and worship you, that we might be able to teach them that you saved them, that they might be able to worship you also. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.